You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 18 and 19 this morning. We have the privilege of looking at 2 Kings 18 and 19, starting in verse 13 of chapter 18. What if I told you I could make your biggest problem go away overnight? Your biggest problem disappear like that. Think of all the problems we have. Financial problems, health problems, family problems, relationship problems, moral problems, work problems, school problems, marriage problems, house problems, car problems, spiritual problems. We have lots of troubles in our lives. And one of the things that Second Kings helps us with is how to think about our problems. And before we read this, I just want to point out that this is going to be a, somewhat of an uncommonly long text, uh, but I think it's worth our time to read through it quickly before we consider it. And just, just keep in mind that what God says about these words is that these words are profitable for us, and that these words were written down so that we might be complete and so that we might be equipped for every good work. Second Kings 18, starting in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the tartan, the rabsaris, and the rabshakeh with a great army from the quiche to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with me, or with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses if you are able to, on your part, set riders on them. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Elkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please, 
Speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink, drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpan? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Ivah? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, Behold, he has sent out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? 
Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Avah? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked? and reviled. Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging point, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass? That you should bring fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be a sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same way he shall return. For he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. 
And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Father, it is so easy to set our minds on all of our problems and all of our troubles and all of our difficult circumstances. And they multiply and multiply and multiply, it seems, in our lives. But we now look to you and we ask that through your word you would inform our minds. Would you use now your word to conform us into the image of your Son? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the time we have remaining, let's, let's consider what we can glean from these two chapters in, first, or in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 18 and 19. In order to do this, we're going to look at the problem in chapter 18. Then we're going to look at Hezekiah's plea to God in verses 1 through 19 of chapter 19. And finally look at the provision God provides in 2 Kings 19 verses 20 through 37. So we know that this is an important story in Scripture because this story is recorded three different times in the Old Testament. Uh, we're looking at it here, but you can also read about it in 2 Chronicles 32 and then in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. So as we come and we consider the problem, what is the problem in 2 Kings 18? Well, first we're introduced to the characters. So if you look in verse 13 of chapter 18, the first person we're introduced to is Hezekiah. And if we're going to understand who Hezekiah is, we first need to understand who Abraham is. Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis 12, is the the individual whom God decided to use to start his program to end the work of Satan. And he promised Abraham and his wife Sarah that he would bless all the families of the earth through this family that he was going to make into a kingdom. He promised Abraham and Sarah that kings would come from Abraham and Sarah. Well, uh, as their family progressed generation after generation, uh, the family of Abraham struggled to be holy. They struggled to trust God and to serve God. It became clear very quickly that they were in need of a leader, a king who could point them to God, who could lead them to trust God and serve God. And hundreds of years later, they got that king in King David. King David was a man after God's own heart. He was not perfect, but he did lead God's people to trust God. And God promised David that one of David's sons would sit on the throne forever. So the book of First and Second Kings is really a record of, of that Davidic lineage, of, of the, uh, the successors of King David in, in the line of David. So the first king to come after David is Solomon. Uh, Solomon is good in some ways, but he's disappointing in, in comparison to David. And uh, David's grandson, the third in line, uh, his name's Rehoboam. Rehoboam is even more of a disaster than, than Solomon. Rehoboam actually splits the kingdom of God into two different people so that you have the northern kingdom uh, called Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, a whole bunch of different families of kings uh, rule over the northern kingdom, but it's David's line that continues to, to rule in Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. 
And 2 Kings is tracing all of these. According to God's promise, the sons of David remain on a throne in Jerusalem. But, but it's interesting, none of them are very exemplary. None of them actually come back and uh, are at the status of, of David. It says many of them do what's evil in the sight of the Lord. And as we read through First and Second Kings, the promise to Abraham to bless all the families of the earth seems pretty distant and, and far-fetched as we read through that. But, but that's when we come to Hezekiah here in, in chapter 18. Uh, Hezekiah was a really shining light in comparison to many of his uh, ancestors that came before him. Uh, what, it, what we read about Hezekiah is that not only does he do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but we're told in verse 5 of chapter 18 that he trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kingdoms of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. So Hezekiah is the closest thing to King David that we've had in generations of spiritual de- decay in Israel. Hezekiah isn't perfect, but he holds fast to the Lord. We're first introduced to Hezekiah. This is the good guy. Then we're introduced to the bad guy, Sennacherib in verse 13. Who is Sennacherib? Well, Sennacherib is the king of Assyria. And Assyria at this time is the most powerful military force on the planet. Just 20 years earlier, uh, Sennacherib's grandfather came and ransacked the northern kingdom of Israel and hauled them off into exile. So at this point in the narrative, there is the, the northern kingdom is no more. All that's left is the southern kingdom. According to God, that was in direct consequence for failing to take God's word seriously. And as we come to chapter 18, Sennacherib is angry with Hezekiah. And the reason he's angry is because Hezekiah, in all of his religious reforms of the the people in in Judah, he has severed ties with Assyria. Uh, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, had set up this subservient relationship with with, uh, the kings of Assyria. But Hezekiah is saying, no, our, our, we trust God. We are not going to be subservient to this other king. God is our king. But of course, the, the king of Assyria is not happy with this. So here comes Hezekiah, or sorry, here comes Sennacherib, uh, by the way, on the heels of multiple military victories. And he's coming to teach Hezekiah a lesson and to put him in his place. And we see in verse 13 that Sennacherib's initial conquest is successful. Many of the cities of Judah are conquered. And in fact, Hezekiah tries to negotiate peace. And we read about that in verses 14 through 16. Bible scholars debate why Sennacherib doesn't uh, respond favorably uh, after Hezekiah gives him this big sum of money, but uh, it appears that that sum of money doesn't ultimately satisfy Sennacherib. So, So Sennacherib in verse 17, he sends three representatives and a great army to Jerusalem. He sends the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, uh, those are all interesting people, but the one you need to know or focus on is the Rabshakeh. He's the one who speaks on behalf of Sennacherib. He's the one, uh, he's the cupbearer for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. So when the Rabshakeh is speaking, it's as if Sennacherib is, is speaking. We're introduced also in verse 18 to three representatives who uh, represent Hezekiah, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. So, so here's sort of the scene. You've got Sennacherib here and his three representatives. And then over here, you've got Hezekiah and his three representatives. And there's going to be a war of words that starts here. And, and it starts in verse 19. The Rabshakeh gives this first taunt or this first threat to Jerusalem and to Hezekiah. Uh, the theme of this threat you see in verse 20. In whom do you now trust? We're going to come back to that. Uh, He goes on to taunt Hezekiah with things that are not true. In in verse 21, 
the Rabshakeh says that Hezekiah is trusting in Egypt. There's no evidence that that's true. In verse 22, he claims that Hezekiah has displeased the Lord. And once again, there's no evidence that that's true. In verses 23 through 24, we find out that the army in Jerusalem is probably less than 2,000 soldiers. So the scenario here is 185,000 at least versus 2,000. These are not these are not good odds for Jerusalem. And then in verse 25, the Rabshakeh claims that Hezekiah's God shouldn't be trusted because Hezekiah's God is the one who told Sennacherib to come and attack Jerusalem. Now, once again, that's probably a lie. It comes in the series, a whole list of other lies. And we're also told that this was a common way that the Assyrians would threaten their enemies. They'd come to them and they'd say, listen, your God's told us to come and destroy you. But note these words in verse 20. In whom do you now trust? In whom do you now trust? These words clearly become the theme of this whole story. Saying in effect, in in the face of this opposition, Hezekiah, who do you trust now? You've made all these, you're this great king, you've made all this religious reform. Well, now it's it's really going to be tested. It's, It's easy to trust God, when 185,000 troops aren't outside your door ready to come and, and clobber you. But you find out where your real trust really is when you're facing opposition, don't you? It's in your reactions in times of crisis that you find out who your real God is. That you find out who it really is that you find security in or what it is in that you truly find security. Uh, the, uh, the representatives of Hezekiah respond in verses 26 and 27 to chapter 18. They, uh, they ask these Assyrians to stop speaking in Aramaic. They say, we understand Aramaic. Let's, let's talk in Aramaic so that everyone else can hear. But of course, the Assyrians, they want to intimidate everyone in Jerusalem. And so they purposely speak in Hebrew so that everyone can hear. And that leads to the second taunt or the second threat of the Rabshakeh in verses 28 through 35. This second threat is addressed to all the people of Jerusalem, whereas the first one was addressed to Hezekiah. Once again, the theme of this threat is about trusting God and whether or not God and God's king can save them. The Assyrians want to remind them in verses 33 and 35 that none of the other gods of the other nations have been able to deliver those peoples. But then there's this strange offer. If you look at verses 31 and 32, there's this sort of odd, odd offer that the Rabshakeh gives to all the people in Jerusalem. Look at verses 31 and 32. The Rabshakeh deceptively offers peace to the people in Jerusalem. He deceptively makes these wonderful promises to them. He says, you'll eat of your own vine and fig tree. If you'll listen, you abandon Hezekiah, come to me, you will, you'll, you'll have your own you, you will prosper. You'll have your own water, sister. And then I'll take you to my land. And my land, it's like your land. You'll love it. It's full of grain and wine and olive trees and honey. What's this place sound like? This place sounds like a beautiful garden, doesn't it? Doesn't this kind of remind us of even like the Garden of Eden. These words remind us of how the promised land was, was promised to God's people before they went and uh, God gave them the, the promised land. And then we, get the, then, then we get the words that really give away where these words come from. 
the rapture says, you will live and not die. Where have we heard those words before? You will live and not die. Well, in another garden, from another deceptive, lying mouth, and Sennacherib's exposed for who he is and who he represents here. Satan consistently tempts in this way. Don't trust God. God can't be trusted. Now instead, come and get what you want from me. I'll give you food. I'll give you pleasure. I'll give you security. Satan will tell you everything you want to hear, but it never leads to life. It always leads to death. It's amazing how similar this is with with Genesis 3. You can count on the fact that if this is how Satan was operating in Genesis 3, thousands of years later, this is how he's operating in 2 Kings. This is how he's operating today. Don't trust God. God can't be trusted. Come and get what you want my way, and everything will be just fine. Lies. Always lies. We get the response of people in Jerusalem in verses 36 and 37. Uh, they don't answer the Rabshakeh a word. Uh, obeying what Hezekiah has commanded, don't answer him a word. So what's, what's the problem here? Uh, the problem is we have 185,000 troops outside our door who are ready to come and kill the rest of God's people. No surprise. Uh, we also have a satanic figure here who's telling us we can't trust God. No surprise, deceptively promising life before, before delivering death. What is Hezekiah going to do? What's he going to do? Well, secondly, moving into chapter 19, we, we, we see Hezekiah's plea here. Two different responses from Hezekiah. First, in verses 1 through 7, what does Hezekiah do? He, he tears his clothes. He covers himself with sackcloth. Clearly, Hezekiah is not unmoved by the situation. Clearly, he understands the gravity of the situation. He's taking this seriously. He's not pretending like, oh, this is no big deal. And then where does he go? He goes to the house of the Lord. And who does he go to? He goes to Isaiah, the prophet. This is the Isaiah, like the one you want to know about. This is the one in your Bible, the Isaiah, the son of Amos. And, and what does Isaiah represent here? What does Isaiah represent at this time in redemptive history? Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah represents God's word. His role is to be a mediator between God and his people. And his role is to speak God's words to God's people. So, so Hezekiah goes to the house of the Lord and he goes to God's word. In verses 2 through 5, uh, Hezekiah sends officials to Isaiah to ask him to pray. And in verses 6 and 7, God responds. What's the first thing God says in response to this problem? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This isn't the first or the last time that God's going to give this command to his people. God says this over and over and over again. Does, does God want his people to be afraid? No. 
No, he doesn't want his people. Are we obeying and trusting and glorifying God when we're afraid? No. We're not. That, that says something about what we believe, who we believe God is. Now, does God understand when we're afraid? Well, yes, yes, he, he, he understands. But what does he tell us to do? Do not be afraid. What else does God say in verses 6 and 7? He, he essentially says, I've got it covered. Uh, I've seen everything. I've heard everything. I've heard all these taunts, and I've heard him mocking me. I'm going to turn him around, and I'm going to make sure that he dies. Which leads us to Sennacherib's letter, verses 8 through 13. We, 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 see this, uh, we see this, in a sense, it starts to get answered immediately, or so it, it seems. In verse 8, the Rabshakeh goes back to Sennacherib. Uh, the Egyptians have come and, and challenged Sennacherib, which uh, leads to a pause, just a brief pause here in the conflict between the Assyrians and and Jerusalem. And, but then in verses 9 through 13, Sennacherib sends, Sennacherib sends this letter to Hezekiah. And this letter clearly indicates that Sennacherib's plans have not changed. Uh, this letter represents another taunt or a third threat to Jerusalem. Uh, this taunt is directed at Hezekiah. Once again, he questions God's ability to save Jerusalem. And once again, we're reminded that no other God has been able to stand against the Assyrians thus far. And then we get Hezekiah's second response in verses 14 through 19. What's his response? Look at verse 14. He reads the letter. He goes to the house of the Lord. And he spreads the letter before the Lord. Demonstrating. Hezekiah is not the ultimate ruler of Jerusalem, of Judah. He takes the here's the king of Judah taking this letter and spreading it before the Lord. And he prays. And he prays to God and he asks for deliverance. Now, before we look at that prayer, just stop for one one second here. How how could we summarize what Hezekiah has done in response to this very big problem? I think we've established this is a big problem. This is one of life's bigger problems in, in Hezekiah's life. How could we summarize Hezekiah's response to this problem? Verses 1 through 7, he goes to God's word through Isaiah. Verses 14 through 19, he prays. He goes to God's word and he prays. I I know it's popular today, even in our circles, uh, to say that when life is very difficult, you can't just tell people to read God's word and pray can't do that. And I, and I understand that Scripture does have other things to say about suffering and, and life's troubles, but every single Christian in this room needs to deal with what is happening here in 2 Kings. When 185,000 troops are outside your door, they hate you, They're coming to kill you. This is a big problem. The one God recognizes as an example does two things. He goes to God's word and he prays. Let's never underestimate how important and powerful those two things are. And he prays in verses 15 through 19. And these are so wonderful, they're worth repeating. 
And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which, we has, he, which, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from the hand, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Three Three quick observations about this prayer. First, does Hezekiah have a big view of God or a small view of God? He has a big, big, big view of God. But the second question, will you ever go to God like this if you don't have a big view of God? You won't. You won't. You never will. And the, and, and the place that you get a big view of God is in God's Word. Get yourself. If, if you're someone who anticipates uh, that you're not going to have any more crises the rest of your life, that it's just going to be smooth sailing from here on out, well, maybe don't worry about this. But if you have a feeling like every single other human being on the face of the earth for all of human history, that there is crisis coming, get yourself a big view of God. Hezekiah has a big view of God. Second, he has a distinct view of God. Hezekiah knows his God is different from all the other gods of the nations. He knows that his God is distinct. And in this case, he knows that he's, he's real. The God of Judah is not like any of the other gods. He has a big view of God. He has a distinct view of God. And third, he has a God-centered view of God. On what basis does Hezekiah appeal to God? What's the basis that he want, that he, he, he sets forward to God to get God to act on his behalf? Uh, is it his whole record of good things that he's done? You know, God, after all, uh, I'm pretty good. It's uh, the first time you've had a king like this since King David, and I think it's uh, probably appropriate that you would... Reward that at this time, considering the... That's, that's not what Hezekiah does. Does, does, he, does he ask for God? Does he appeal to God on the basis of going through the right religious rituals, the right religious system? You know, after all, God, I went, I read my Bible, or I went to the prophet, I guess, uh, and then I prayed, and uh, those are the two steps you told me to do, and now I expect you to uh, do your part. That's, that's not how this story goes. The basis of Hezekiah's appeal to God is in verse 19. That all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. He doesn't claim he deserves this. But that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God alone. He is God. There is none like him. Hezekiah knows all things are from him and through him. And to him, although Paul hadn't written that yet, Romans 11.36. So Hezekiah has a big view of God. He has a distinct view of God. 
And he has a God-centered view of God, which is why in a time of crisis, he goes to God's word and he prays. So Hezekiah makes this plea to God for help with his big problem. And how does God provide? Moving thirdly to the provision God provides, recorded in verses 20 through 37 of chapter 19. God speaks, God promises, and God acts. He speaks, he promises, and he acts. First, he speaks. Verses 21 through 22. After being mocked by Sennacherib, there's a sense in which God's now mocking him back. Uh, we've, we've heard from Sennacherib, but now we're hearing from the other side. And, and what we're hearing here from the other side is not only can this God stop Sennacherib from this military victory, uh, God's going to one-up him just a little bit here. Uh, God is, is going to help, well, supposedly, or as if Sennacherib will even listen. God puts Sennacherib in a place by, by pointing out the fact that he is the one who determined and planned every single victory that Sennacherib has experienced up to this point. Your move, Sennacherib. Verse 28, God is the one who determines where Sennacherib goes. Verses 29 through 31, God gives this sign to help the people remember what he's, what he's going to do. Uh, he promises that in a matter of three years' time, uh, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to be ready to resume their, their normal agricultural practice. Uh, so something to remember after this, this event. We move on from this event to look back on. Uh, verses 32 through 34, God makes this amazing promise here now. Uh, not only will Sennacherib lose this battle, uh, Sennacherib's not even going to get a chance to shoot an arrow at Jerusalem. Right? That's a big claim. It's a big claim. 185,000 versus 2,000. Uh, here's how this battle's going to go. Not even, not even, you're not even going to get one arrow shot off. And then God states the reasons why he will act. He says, I will do it for my sake, and I will do it for the sake of my servant, David. Hezekiah is God-centered, and God is God-centered. God acts for the sake of his own glory, and he acts in accordance with the promises he has previously made, in this case, promises he's made to David. So God speaks, God promises, and then God acts, which we see in verses 35 through 37. Uh, here we have the description of the conclusion of the conflict. Uh, it's quite brief. Uh, conflicts with God are always quite brief. Verse 35, the Assyrians go to bed, a powerful military force. The Assyrians wake up, 185,000 dead, struck down by one single opponent, the angel of the Lord. And, and just stop for a second, just note, God did this. This, this, is, this is historical events that actually took place. God accomplished this. God can do things like this. Do you have troubles in your life? Are you threatened in your life? God can make 185,000 of our troubles disappear like that. That's, that's incredibly encouraging. That can also be really sobering to think about. Because the implication is that if, if God hasn't made those things go away, there's some reason. And, and we don't even know, always know the precise reason 
Why not? And that can be a hard pill to swallow. But, but 2 Kings is informing us here of who God is and what God is capable of. Verses 36 and 37, uh, the end of the story is uh, pretty great. Sennacherib's death, uh, he returns home, defeated, of course. Uh, he's worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, and his sons come and uh, assassinate him. Uh, and just, just as a way to kind of summarize what happens here, or just to, just to point out some of the some of the sweet irony here, and I, I need to give credit to one of my favorite professors, Dr. Hamilton, for this observation. Uh, just comparing how the story ends and the story begins here. So the story begins, uh, you have Sennacherib's claim. And what's Sennacherib's claim? Well, Sennacherib's claim is that Yahweh, Hezekiah's God, cannot defend his subjects, even in Jerusalem, even in the holy city of Jerusalem. Yahweh, Hezekiah's God cannot even defend his own subjects in Jerusalem. That's the beginning of the story. But then you have the end of the story. And how does the story end? The story ends looking at Sennacherib, right? And, and here we start with, well, we have, so we started with Sennacherib's claim. Now we have Sennacherib's death, wherein Nisroch, Sennacherib's God, can't even defend his own subjects in his own temple. Turns out it really does matter. In whom do you now trust? Uh, in many ways, uh, this story is, is our story. We have, we have problems. We have troubles. We meet adversity. And, and we make our pleas to God. And as we do that, Hezekiah should be an example to us. We ought to go to God's word and prayer in our troubles. That we should just recognize we will not do that unless we have a big view of God, a distinct view of God, and a God-centered view of God. And then God also makes provision for us. But, so it's true that in some ways this story is our story, but, but the story for us does go a little bit, a little bit differently. Uh, so you fast forward 700 years, uh, and you still have another Davidic king. And you still actually have another Davidic king who even goes to God and makes this plea to God that what's about to happen, the destruction and, and the, the judgment that's about to happen would not happen. Father, let this cup pass from me. But this time in the story, things go different. Rather than God judging the Assyrians, the Davidic king goes and he stands between God and the Assyrians. And God's wrath is poured out on the Davidic king instead of the Assyrians. And then the Assyrians are welcomed into the kingdom of God. God provides. God provides. He speaks. He promises and he acts. God has spoken. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. God has promised. He is coming again. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's given us signs to remember what he's done. 
Baptism and communion are, are not just nice accessories to the Christian life. These are crucial, pointing us to who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. God has spoken, God has promised, and God has acted. In Christ, God has offered His life in exchange for ours. In Christ, God has taken our curse and our shame and our guilt as ugly, bad guy, pagan Assyrians. And He's paid for our shame and our guilt on the cross. In Christ, God has risen from the dead, triumphant. In whom do you now put your trust? It would be so nice if all of our problems could disappear overnight. We have a lot of problems. And this Old Testament story helps us recognize that our biggest and truest problem has disappeared. As baptism signifies, we have died and risen in Christ. What Assyrian army can hurt us now? In whom do you now trust? Let's pray. Father, we confess we are so often so focused on ourselves, our troubles, our problems, our circumstances. And we confess we have often excused our sinful behavior as we fail to acknowledge you and as we treat those around us poorly. We have justified that with our poor circumstances. Father, forgive us. We cling to the finished work of Christ who died for our arrogance and our unbelief. And although we ignore it and suppress it, Father, thank you that you have not made light of our struggles and our sufferings. Through the cross, you have demonstrated that you take them more seriously than even we do. Father, open our eyes to you in the midst of our problems. Rescue us from the God-denying insanity of endless meditation on everything that's wrong in our lives in this fallen world. Lift our eyes up to you. Nothing threatens you. Nothing stops you. No one intimidates you. There's no king or army or government or weather forecast, or financial crisis, or microscopic cell of bacteria that can stand before you or against you. You hold the oceans in your hand. Kings and nations tremble at your voice. And for those problems in our lives that remain, for those things in our lives that you have not yet willed to end, that afflict us, and also for the problems that we have yet to face between this moment and final resurrection, we answer Sennacherib. Our trust is in the Lord our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.